We are in this series that we've entitled The Storyteller. And Jesus communicated so many important and powerful truths to us through story. And I love how he did that because Jesus could have just made a statement and left it at that. But as Michael said last week, we wouldn't remember the statement as much as we do the stories. And so uh, one of the things that we're going to look at today is, is a beautiful story. I think it's the only one he tells of, of, a, of a couple of guys who end up in a worship setting, in a church setting. And, uh, and, and the one, again, in most of his stories, the one that you think is going to be the good guy in the story usually ends up being the not so good guy. And the one that you think, well, that's not going to be the hero of the story oftentimes ends up being. And that's the same thing in the story that we're going to look at here today. And so uh, it, it, I want us to think about vision here today, right? This past week at our house, uh, I have a, a 13, I think he's 13 year old son who needs new glasses. It's been a couple of years. His are getting really beat up and, and uh, we need to take him to the eye doctor and we will do that eventually. Uh, but I thought there's those little online places you can order glasses really cheap. And so I thought, let's just 20 bucks, what's it gonna hurt? So we're gonna try a pair of these. And so we found the old uh, prescription, a couple of years old, I think it's expired maybe, um, but it's, it's okay. And so uh, we'll try it. So I'm Googling how to read this chart and how to put it all in there. It's great, it was, nothing could go wrong. Anyway, so we ordered glasses for Nathan and this turned out well, I think. So if you wanna show this picture, uh, it turned out really good. So it's, uh, I'm, I'm just kidding. Um, I can't wait for him to see that next service. Uh, but anyway, but <laughs> we ordered glasses, but it makes you wonder, okay, when these glasses glasses do finally, you can take that, you go back to the other one before, you can take that down. Um, there you go, thank you. And so, <laughs> that's, you're not focusing on me with that up there. And so, uh, when you, uh, but again, vision is an important thing, right? If you're a glassware, I've been a glassware since seventh grade, I think, and so I, I've lived my life with the annoyance of every day having to deal with glasses and, and having your eyes change a few years ago, the silliness of bifocals and that whole new world. And so, I, I, you can either laugh about it or you can cry about it, right? And so, I choose to laugh about it. And so, I found some funny things about eyes and vision and things like that. The last two have a point. The first two are just frivolous. Uh, I found this. I love this. This is my favorite joke. What do you call a deer with no eyes? He's a no eye deer. There you go. There you go. Again, you can use that at the coffee shop this week. Some of you will think about that and get that later. Uh, the next one, I like this. This was, uh, it's been a while since you've seen us, hasn't it? It's the great big letter E. That's all it is, is the flip chart. That's all she can see. But these last two have a point to them, all right? This one, um, Imagine, have you ever cheated on a test? Don't raise your hand. But if you have ever cheated on your test, imagine going into a, a, uh, an eye exam and you know you can't read the chart and so you cheat and you put it on your hand and, and you think, well, I'm gonna pass this test. But really in passing the test, you're failing the test and you're failing the what matters most, right? Because the goal is to be able to see. And so this poor soul is gonna do really well in his eye exam, but he's gonna be blind as a bat, right? So, and this last one, I love these. This is... Uh, Maxine, she said, I wish my eye doctor could prescribe glasses that improve my outlook on life. And uh, I, that's what I want to launch off of here today. Actually, I want to launch off, launch off of the Bible, but I want to use Maxine to get me to the Bible because I, I think um, when you look at the story in Luke 18, verse 9 and following that we're going to look at today, I think Maxine summarizes the story pretty well. That the way that you look at Life and God and yourself and others is all wrapped up in this story. And your vision is so important, right? And God does prescribe glasses, lenses, by which it will change your entire outlook of life as you look through them. And so I want to look through those lenses here today with three looks that we find in Luke chapter 9, excuse me, 18, verses 9 through 14. And in doing so, I hope that we change the way that you see life 
and you see God and you see yourself and you see others. And this is a passage, it's a beautiful passage, it's a familiar one. But I think as a Christian, you can't come back to this passage enough because there's this con constant tendency as a Christian to be drawn back into this, um, uh, we'll, get, we'll define it later. We're drawn back into something I want to define a little bit later. So let's read our passage. Luke 18, beginning in verse 9, Jesus says this. And so he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And so Luke frames the story by telling us who Jesus is speaking to, right? Those who were uh, trusting in themselves, thinking they were righteous on their own, and those who were treating others with contempt. And so he, he frames it, and then he tells the story to follow in verse 10. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now just remind you, hearing that for the first time, you and I hear that and you think, well, you and I have been conditioned by thousand, two thousand years of church history to think, well, Pharisees are always the bad guy, right? They're the enemies. They're always the bad people. But that is not how this would have been heard the first time it was spoken. If you were to hold up a Pharisee and a tax collector in Jesus' day when Jesus told the story, the good guy, or at least the guy that you would think who's going to do the right thing is certainly the Pharisee. And definitely the bad guy in the story is a tax collector, okay? And so Jesus introduces us and draws us into the story. We're envisioning walking into the temple, this good, righteous, um, known man. By the way, he dressed by everything he did. You could tell he was just a, a seriously religious man and another man whose entire life and reputation was just tarnished and um, oftentimes uh, illegal and unethical and all kinds of things and just not well thought of, okay? So those two people walk into the temple together. The Pharisee in verse 11, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners. I like this version because it uses the word extortioners. I haven't used the word extortioner for a long time. Extortioner, I'm not an extortioner. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. So just pause there and think before we go on to listen to the rest of that. Oftentimes these prayers in the temple, they weren't silent prayers like we would oftentimes pray at church, but they would have been out loud. They would have been prayers spoken out loud and it's a good chance that others around him would have heard and there's a good chance even the tax collector would have, been heard, would have heard the Pharisee making a point at his expense. All right, and so, but verse 12, 13 goes on to say, the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus asked the question, I tell you, um, uh oh, I think I skipped a verse. Did I skip a verse? No? Okay, very good. I tell you, okay, sorry, I didn't, sorry. He doesn't ask a question, he makes a statement. Sorry, the preacher should study, and then that would happen. Okay, I tell you, this man, the man, the, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. Now, that's a shocking statement for Jesus' first hearers. There is no way that the tax collector goes home right with God while the religious man goes home uh, wrong with God, all right? For everyone, but then Jesus explains it, why that is the case. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And so Jesus helps us to see through some lenses. And I want us to not, before we get to the things the Pharisee does wrong, and there's certainly, he's the, the guy to pick on in the story. 
But I want us to begin at a place where most of us will probably relate well, because I think he, his first view, his first lens, if you were to walk down the eye chart, the first big letter E, I think he starts in a good place. And it's a place that if you've walked with God at all, I think you've probably been there too. View one is this, that spiritual praise at seeing what God is doing in his life. And so the Pharisee begins this whole thing before it gets to the whole part of, I'm glad I'm not like that guy. He does start in a good place. He starts with, God, I thank you. He recognizes that everything about his life, the reasons he does what he does, why he is who he is, is all because of what God has done in his life. And that's a good place to start. And I don't want us to miss that. Because it's easy for us, again, to think Pharisees are always bad. Everything they do is bad. But again, Pharisees did a lot of noble and good things. Jesus would oftentimes say to those when he was even chastising the Pharisees, you know what, don't have the heart they have, but it's a good thing to do the things they do. They did some good stuff. And so spiritual praise at seeing what God is doing in his life is it's like that big letter E at the top of that chart that kind of helps you to see, man, this is, this is where it all starts. And so he, we ought to at least pause before we do kind of throw him under the bus a little bit to pause and say, you know what, that's a good place for my prayers to start. God, I thank you. God, thank you for what you are doing. That's simply a recognition of God is getting credit for the spiritual work that is going on in his life. And, and you and I probably don't pray the same words, but you and I probably pray this prayer a lot more than you, you would think. God, I thank you is the idea of seeing growth in his life as a gift from God and he's correct. And you've prayed this prayer as I said. God, I, maybe you've seen someone else in their life you see somebody's life who's just kind of in a mess right now and you think, God, thank you I'm not there. Or, or, or thanks for God for, maybe I was there, but God, thank you that I'm not there now. And maybe you've seen someone struggling and said the words, you know what, there but by the grace of God go I. Right? You ever said that phrase? That's echoing where the Pharisee begins his prayer. God, thank you. And I love the story of, uh, I have a picture here for you. I think I have a picture of a turtle on a post, right? Uh, if you were walking down the road and saw a turtle up on top of that post, you would think one of two things. Wow, turtles fly. No, you would not think that. You would think that turtle has assistance to get on top of that post. And I love the story. Many years ago, Alex Haley, the author of the book Roots, used to keep a picture of a turtle on a post in his office. And he said he put it there to keep him... To, to remind him of a lesson that he learned long ago. If you see a turtle on a fence post, you know that he had some help. And Haley went on to say, anytime I start to think of myself, look how good I am, I look at the turtle. That's me, and realize that I did not get there by myself. And so I think, again, the Pharisee, while we're going to criticize a few things about what he says in his heart, I don't think he begins from a bad place. God, thank you. That is always a good place for us to start. Now, what happens after that? What we say next is very, very important. But God, thank you, is a very good place for us to be starting our prayers from. Because all of us are the turtle on the post, right? None of us got here without assistance from God or from others in our life. And so it's always a good place to begin. God, thank you for, what, uh, for where I am. Thank you for what you have done for me. And so he begins in a good place. So the first view, number one, is simply, God, there's some praise to be given. And that's a good thing. But then you get to view two, and that's where things begin to deteriorate a little bit. View two is simply this, that, that spiritual praise moves to spiritual pride. 
And that's where it begins to become a problem. That he's praising God for, God, thank you, I'm not. And then he, but then instead of saying, God, thank you for blessing me, thank you for working in my life, I was a broken man, but, I, but you have helped to save me and redeem my life. But he says, he, def, he gets off track here. And pride begins to set in in his life. That pride starts to creep in. And it creeps in because he's starting to compare. Instead of just being a man before God... He does what we tend to do in church or just in life. He says, we begin to compare. God, thank you. I'm not like them. And last week, Michael used that cool phrase that uh, who, who's the, the bad guy in the prodigal story? Who's the person that you would least like to be the hero? Well, it's, it's those people. And, and so Jesus does the same thing. God, thank you. I'm not like them. Thank you. I'm not like those people. And it's easy to begin to compare ourselves. And why do we compare? I don't like the feeling of comparing myself to God. I always lose in that transaction. But I like the idea of I can play this game or I can look around the room. Oh, man, you know what he did last week? Oh, did you see her? Oh, man, that's terrible. Why? I would never do. So God, thank you, I'm not like. And so that's where pride begins to creep in. That praise turns into pride and, and we end up in a place that isn't very pretty. And as you read the Pharisees' prayer, God, thank you, I'm not like other men. That's just an, there's an arrogance about that that we don't like. But if we're not careful, that can very subtly work its way into all of our lives. Any Jesus follower's life can, can begin in a very sincere, praising way. But over time, we, we can begin to get caught up in the whole game of, oh man, I'm thankful I'm not as bad as, as that person. And I forget that really my standing is between me and God. And the only person I need to compare myself to as a Christian is my Heavenly Father. Uh, it's not my job to compare or to play games of measuring myself against uh, the merits of other people's lives. And so he prays, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I'm not an extortioner. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. And I'm not even like that tax collector over there. Now, note that he does highlight a couple of things there. He does fast twice a week. He does tithe of all that he gets. Those are good, noble things. And so I want you to get the picture here that people can be doing very good and godly things. I have trouble fasting once a year. This guy's doing it twice a week and tithing of everything he gets. He's a generous man and, and he's, from appearances, he's very godly. But there's a heart in him that has gotten off track. There's a heart that is, is holding up his resume and realizing that, you know what, because I fast twice, I'm a little better than those who just fast once a week. And some people just give 5%. I give 10 of everything I get. And, and so that somehow makes me a little more godly and more special in God's eyes. And that pride can begin to fill us. And so he forgot that it was God's righteousness he should be comparing himself to instead of another man's. I love this illustration I heard that there was a guy who was driving up the mountains and when he went into the mountains on his ski trip, he, he noticed that there was this, this hillside and there was these white sheep out in this field and, and you could see the dirt and the grass and everything in the field and, and the white sheep just looked very dramatic on the hillside because the dark um, background highlighted the beauty and the whiteness of the sheep. But while he was in the mountains skiing, and then he came back out, a large snowstorm had come through. And then when he drove back down the same road, he looked back over that thing, and all the darkness had been covered up with beautiful white snow. But guess what the sheep looked like? They were dingy, 
not white, not pure. And the darkness of the sheep was contrasted to the beauty of the snow. And so it's all about what background are you holding yourself up to? And that's where the Pharisee gets off track. Um, as was heard during our communion meditation, Romans 3.23, the background that we all ought to hold ourselves up to on a regular basis is this, that all have sinned, that all of us fall short of the glory of God. I don't measure up to the righteousness of God. Now, if I want to be that sheep on a nice, clear day, I can compare myself and say, well, compared to the dirt, compared to the other things, I may look pretty good, but compared to the beauty and the righteousness and the perfection of God, I don't measure up very well. And so that leads to the third view, that as we move our way down that spiritual eye chart, that it was a spiritual poison that was at work in us when we forget that we need mercy as much as anyone else does. It's a subtle thing as you read through this man's prayer. As he talks about the things he's not, he talks about the things he does for God, he forgets how much he needs God. And the danger for all of us, if we have been walking with God very long, is that we can get to that place where I think, well, God, you got me started. Thanks for saving me. I appreciate that. But I've got it now. I don't need you as much. And that's when that pride turns into a poison in our soul that real realize that, you know what, I just, I don't cry out to God nearly as much as I did when I first came to know him because I've kind of figured it out. I've figured out how to do some things. I, I can either fake my way or, or fake it till you make it kind of thing. And, and I can make it through life. And I just don't cry out to God. Because I don't see my need for him and so Jesus holds up the tax collector's prayer. Again, a man that in culture's eyes was a loser in every way, shape, and form. He was a nobody. Nobody liked him. Nobody loved him. Nobody appreciated him. But what was his prayer? He wouldn't even lift his eyes. Because he was, what's he comparing? He's contrasting my life with God's righteousness. I have no, no right to even look at that. So he's humble. The idea of beating his breast was a, a repentant act. And his simple prayer was, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that's, that's what's he crying for. God, before your beauty and your righteousness and your holiness, I'm a nobody. I'm, I'm a nothing. And I have no right to stand here. I have no right to look at you. I'm a nothing. And I desperately need the mercy. I need mercy from you. Because what I'm going to get is justice and judgment. And so, God, I need your mercy and so these two prayers are held in, in, um, in contrast. And so I want to finish by asking you to think with me, okay? I know I've kind of lulled you to sleep, uh, but I want you to wake up here, okay? Everybody's heads wake up. I like that. Okay, everybody's heads came up. And so um, elbow your neighbor if they're still sleeping. Okay, two words I want you to think about, two big Bible preacher words, Bible words, okay? It's this. Um, this little phrase here is what I want you to think about as we leave here. Like the Pharisee, we sometimes begin to think that our sanctification is the grounds for our justification, okay? Those are big words that we may not know a lot or use a lot in our culture, but boy, they're important Bible words. And so I want you to think with me, okay? Justification equals being made right with God, all right? That's that whole idea that, that when I come to know Christ, that, that I am made right, I am forgiven, I am made right with God. Sanctification, though, is that process by which the Holy Spirit then moves into my life and begins to change me to be more like God. And so I'm gonna illustrate this, so leave this up here for a second. And so think about this. You and I find a boat and we wanna cross the lake and we find a boat and it's got a motor on it. And so to get across the lake, we, we start the motor and we take off across the lake. 
And we get halfway across the lake and we realize, oh, look, there's, there's some oars on this boat. And so we shut the motor off and we sit down and we begin to, to row, row, row our boat gently across the river, okay? And so we make our little way across there and, and no longer we have access to the, the motor, but we'd prefer to just row it ourselves. And, and a little bit of what's going on here in the Pharisee's mind is, is that he thinks maybe God helped him to get started, but why would God welcome the Pharisee into his presence and forgive him and make him right? It's because he believes that his sanctification, the whole idea of the change in his life, that God loves me, that God accepts me, that I'm more upright and, and proper to stand before God because I've been changed on the outside to look more like God. Does that make sense? And so the process that I wish God would have us to think through this process is that I need grace, I need mercy, just as much for justification to be made right with God. When I come to God, God, I'm a, a lost sinner. I need your mercy and your grace, just like the tax collector. That's where we all start, but that needs to be the attitude that I continue with. As God works through the whole sanctification process of changing me to be more like God, I need that grace and that mercy just as much 10 years from now as I will now because I'm never gonna get to the place where I can shut the motor off, which is God's mercy and grace, and just begin to say, you know what, God, just save your gas, I'm okay here. I can row the rest of the way. I'm never gonna get to that place. But the Pharisee had gotten to that place of thinking, you know what, God, thank you for getting it started, but now I've got this figured out because I've got my morals in line and, and I'm doing these godly things. But yet God says, your heart is way off. You still need mercy just as much for sanctification, the, the changing part of you, as you did for the saving part of you. So when you and I think about that, I just want you to ask yourself the question, an important question that I hope that you will wrestle with me here. I'm gonna skip a couple of slides here, slide person. All right, so here's the question. I want you to realize this, this with me, that when you look at what James chapter, where Jesus finishes passage, passage, James chapter four, verse 10 echoes that theme. All right, when he says, humble yourselves, before the Lord. So here's the key question. Who is going to humble you? This is where we want to finish today. The, Jesus finishes this parable, this story, with the idea of those who humble themselves will be exalted and those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And so there's a humbling. Some, we're all going to be humbled. No matter when or what, we're all going to be humbled, right? The most proud person in this world will be humbled at some day before God, right? And so the question is, when and who is going to do it? And so there's a choice to be made. I can choose to humble myself according to this passage, that those who humble themselves, and then out of that humility, God will exalt and lift my life in his way. Or I can choose to exalt myself, push myself to the front of the line all the time. And what's God going to do that? Hebrews, or excuse me, James chapter four, verse 10. I think if you go back a couple slides, I think that's in there. Uh, James four, verse 10, maybe, maybe, maybe. Okay, there it is. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. So there's that thinking. The next one, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 and 6 says, All of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because what? This, this verse, every time I read it, it, it catches me. God not just doesn't like the proud. What does it say he does? He opposes. That's an action verb, right? God is working against those who exalt themselves. You can think of all kinds of stories in the Bible, but I love the story of Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. He's the great king over all the world, this vast, beautiful, powerful kingdom. And he stands on his balcony looking over all that he has and all that he has done. And he says, how great I am. 
Not how great you are, but how great am I, right? Look what I have done. Look what I have built. Look what I have made with my thinking, my ingenuity, my leadership, all these things. Look what I have done. And then God comes and says, you know what, Nebuchadnezzar, because of your arrogance, I'm going to humble you. And so for a, a long period of time, he, he kind of loses his mind a little bit. And he wanders the, uh, the, the grounds, eating grass like a cow. And he just becomes this wild-looking man. And, and he's humbled. And then finally he comes to his senses. And I love what it says um, in Daniel chapter 4, verse 37, as Nebuchadnezzar looks back on that. And he says, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, Praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And I love what he says. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And so who is going to humble you? Are you going to live your life in such a way that like the Pharisee, God has to humble you through external things, through judgment, all kinds of things. The Bible's got lots of them. Or am I going to say, recognize, God, I want to humble myself now so that I can be exalted in your way and in your times. And so let's make a contrast here as we finish. You might be a Pharisee or like the Pharisee when you like it when others view you as deep, deeply religious. Or you might be a Pharisee when you go to church just so you'll feel good about yourself because others didn't go to church today. You might be a Pharisee when you need to get noticed and thanked for serving and ministry. You might be a Pharisee when you regularly compare yourself to other people. You might be a Pharisee when you are quick to dismiss others for not measuring up. Or you might be a Pharisee when you've never prayed the tax collector's prayer. God be merciful to me, a sinner. And so let's flip that around then. How do we humble ourselves? How do I do that? Well, lots of ways. There's probably dozens of them, but here's a, starting point. Maybe it's important for you to take a walk some night. At look at the stars. I was at camp this week. One of my, apart from the 110 kids that were joy, there, there was nights at camp, right? And Cooper, I see you, man. I love you. Okay. All right, good. All right. So, but there was, uh, uh, there was the nights at camp that are my favorite, right? You leave the campfire when it's not raining and you can look at the stars and you just see the sky in a way that you don't when you're, even when you're in town in Eldon, little Eldon, and you see things and you realize, man, what a beautiful sky that is. And you realize how small you are in that universe. So maybe one of the ways that we humble ourselves is realizing my place in the universe. I'm very small in this big place. Maybe we take a walk and look at the stars. Maybe you go to the beach. Are you up for that? I'm up for that. I'm getting a group together. We'll go to the beach and we'll just look at the ocean and think, man, look how big this is compared to little old me. Maybe you do a harder thing, though. You make a call to somebody that you're in conflict with. You own your part in it, and you quit caring about proving yourself right, and you just want things to be better. There's a humility that comes from, you know what, I'm wrong. Maybe I stop fighting a sin that I've been holding in private, and I go to a brother or sister, and I confess that and ask for help. Is there anything more humbling than confessing a sin, saying, look, this is what's going on. Would you help me? I can think of a few more humbling things than that. Maybe you take a stand and, and you share your faith and you put your faith out there. What are they going to do with it? Love it? Reject it? Who knows? There's a humbleness about that. Maybe you do service anonymously, intentionally doing good without hoping to get noticed. And maybe if no one does notice for you doing a good thing, 
then you fight that urge and you're like, well, nobody noticed I did this good thing. Maybe we stop posting it on social media. I'm just saying, I don't know. Maybe we do it and we don't have to post it. I think, did it still happen if I didn't post it? Yeah, it did. But I don't care if anyone noticed it because God sees it and he knows. And that's enough for me. And so who is going to humble you? That's just my prayer for us today. My prayer for myself first. It's easy for people who run in religious circles to very quickly slide from, even maybe we start with the tax collector's attitude. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Not long, it's, we're finding ourselves sliding from praise to pride to all of a sudden the poison that fills us. And the same people that we long for them to come to know the Jesus that we have found, they are turned off by that pride and that poison. And so may we go back to that heart of praise, that heart of sincerity, that heart of, of humility. May we go back there and, and serve and live and love God and love other people from that place. So would you pray with me, please?